I'm Dr. Kerry McInerney. Dr. Eleanor Drage and I are the hosts of the Good Robot podcast. Join us as we ask the experts, what is good technology? Is it even possible? And how can feminism help us work towards it? If you want to learn more about today's topic, head over to our website, www.thegoodrobot.co.uk, where we've got a full transcript of the episode and a specially curated reading list by every guest. We love hearing from listeners, so feel free to tweet or email us, and we'd also so appreciate you leaving us a review on the podcast app. But until then, sit back, relax, and enjoy the episode. In this episode, we talk to Rebecca Woods, a senior lecturer in language and cognition at Newcastle University. We have an amazing chat about language learning in AI, and she tells us how language is crucial to how GPT functions. She's also an expert in how children learn languages, and she compares this to teaching AI how to process language. It's a super fun episode, and we hope you enjoy the show. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I've really been looking forward to this one because you study something that is of utmost relevance to all of us now. So could you introduce yourself, what you do, and tell us a little bit about what's brought you to studying language and technology? Um, Yeah, no, I've been so excited to join you as well. So thank you for having me. Um, Yeah, so my name is Rebecca Woods. I'm a senior lecturer in language and cognition at um, Newcastle University. And one of my main research interests is actually how children acquire language. Um, And it's through um, that, as well as having some excellent colleagues here, that um, I've come to think a little bit more about how language and technology interact. Um, I think a lot of our students, when they join us here, think that that language and technology means mostly things like um, how technology can influence new words, like additions into our lexicon, like, of course, the ever-present of Google. one fun example I like to pull out um, that intersects with my research um, is how the word like um, in Icelandic has actually completely changed its morphological pattern just because of Facebook. Um, so we can have a chat about Wait, that if you like. Mean? Sorry, I'm like yeah. very unlanguagey. Like I just about managed to communicate in like very normal terms. So what, what do you mean it's changed its morphological pattern? Right. So... Um, the verb like, likar in Icelandic, um, was uh, typically a verb, um, well, it's a bit like the English like, right, where it expresses not really an action. You, you, when you like something, you, you're not necessarily saying that you are performing some action in order to like it, but you're saying you are expressing some kind of feeling, right? Um, and so uh, in Icelandic, rather than using the equivalent of English I, you'd actually use something like the equivalent of English to me. Um, as a subject. So like to me likes and whatever the thing you like is um, because it's really expressing this uh, this relationship of sort of uh, feeling and experiencing rather than doing. But then along comes Facebook. Um, and I think the Icelandic translation of Facebook comes along in the late 2010, uh, sorry, late um, uh, noughties. Um, and they need some way of labeling their Icelandic like button, right? Um, and that is an action. Right? And they choose the verb likar, um, and it means that Icelandic it goes from this language that can't possibly say I like something to a language which now can say that I like something and not just to me something is liked um, because you express the action of liking by clicking that button labeled likar. So um, yeah, so technology in that sense has has changed up 
so the, the the shape of um of the Grim Road of Icelandic in a small way, but in a way that's still pretty cool. Oh my gosh, that's nuts! Sorry, it's just amazing because I feel like I was thinking more lol or whatever, like just the kind of yeah. kind of internet parlance that like seep our way into everyday life. But I also very rudely interrupted you. So you were saying that's how we often think about tech and language. But how are you also thinking about it beyond sort of changing language forms? So um, a big debate or a big topic of interest in um, uh, in child language acquisition is like what tools are children actually using in order to take all of the language that they're hearing or seeing um, and break it down, make sense of it in units such that they can, you know, build it back up again into whatever it is they want to say or sign. Um, and there's a question, and it, this was really sort of introduced by Chomsky in the in the 50s and 60s, about whether or not there's some part of our cognition that is specialised for language and language alone. Um, it's not just part of our general learning capacities. Um, it's quite a, a, it's a vigorous debate. It can get occasionally quite nasty. Um, and some some, uh, some researchers who fall very heavily on the side of no language, there is no sort of language specific capacity in the brain have been using large language models to try and make this case um, and looking at how large language models clearly are able to produce language and we'll stick at producing for the minute <laughs> um, without any kind of language specific um, component, they claim, because it principally runs off statistics, right? Um and uh, my colleague, um, Chrissy Cuskley, uh, here in Newcastle, and another colleague um, in uh, Davidson College in the States, Molly Flaherty, took issue with this. Um, and yeah, so we, we wrote a paper um, to try and think a little bit more about how LLMs learn and how they learn differently and or similarly from humans. Just trying to really break down some of the massive hype <laughs> around LLMs at the moment. I mean, they're seeping into our working lives in just about every way imaginable, writing of essays and even writing of assignments <laughs> in some cases. Um, but certainly in, in terms of that, they're, they're getting on the territory of my research here, Kerry. And, <laughs> and so I've got to understand better what's going on with them. Well, thank God we have experts like you to do that for us. So can you help us answer our three good robot questions? What is good technology? Is it even possible? And how can feminism help us work towards it? I mean, I'm sure everybody starts by saying these are three massive questions. <laughs> um, and I guess I started to to plug into them a little bit by thinking about um, an example, again, about how technology and language um, really entrench some aspects of a society that are not positive. And yeah, so I guess it's a negative way of going around thinking what good technology is in that for me, good technology would be Technology which, you know, enhances our lives, but it doesn't continually remind and reinforce in the user how they might be different from what whatever arbitrary standard society has set up for us, you know, almost like technological microaggressions. Um, right. So an example um, that we use quite a lot, I'm based in the Northeast. Right? We have a very, very distinctive local accent and dialect local variety. Um, and for a long time, when automated um, banking systems and telephone systems started to be used, people in the Northeast were locked out. And it's all because of one of the vowels in the variety, right? So if you ask someone um, a question up here and they want to answer in the negative, they won't say no. They'll say something more like no. Okay. Um, and those vowels, if I'm understanding this right anyway, especially in these early systems, were really, really crucial for speech recognition. So to determine between a yes and a no, 
what all that the uh, the, the computers were really working over were um, the uh, the parts of the sound wave that pertain to the vowels. So yes is easy, and that's the same in Tyneside English, Geordie, as it is in sort of standard um, either British or American English. Um, yes, um, but uh, a Geordie nor is very very different. Um, a standard British English no is made up of two vowels and there's a movement between them. And that, so that's quite a nice sort of um, thing to track uh, in in the sound wave for the automated system. But a Geordie no is just one vowel and it's not either of the vowels that you typically find in a British English no. Um, and so continually you're trying to just go about your, your day. Um, you're being told that the system is easier for you to use then you're locked out just because of the way you speak. Um, and that that certainly for me um, would be a barrier against something being judged a good technology. Can I ask really quickly, what are the two vowels? So the two the, the two vowels in um, a standard English no are the uh at the start, moving towards the oh, uh, 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 at the end. Oh, oh. <laughs> so I'm, if you're watching the video, <laughs> you'll have fun watching what my face is doing, but also my tongue's doing something slightly different as well. Um, so we um, move from a relatively open vowel that's sort of central that uh um which is also it's it's so central in the mouth it's it's called a schwa it's got a special name oh that's a schwa that's a schwa yeah the uh sound (laughs) and then um my oh now i'm not actually a phonologist i need to make sure i get this right um the ooh sound we end up with the the tongue is high at the back but my lips are rounded as well um so my tongue has moved backwards my lips have moved forwards um, and those are the two. So, yeah, sort of very open position, a relaxed tongue to um, a high back at the tongue and lips at the forward. Those, those are the two positions that you move between in producing the sound O. Okay, so like the southern O has two vowels. Yeah. And why why is there that, this differentiation? I've always been interested in how the Tower of Babel came to, came to be. Do you have any idea why it's different? For those sorts of questions, I'd really have to ask my colleagues who work more on regional variation and also who work on historical change. Um, but it's true that you, you, there are other varieties in the UK that have um, what we would call a monophthongal vowel there, which is say one vowel, as opposed to a diphthong, which is two. Um, so I spent quite a lot of time in Yorkshire. Um, uh, that's where I did um, all of my studies. Um, and when I was living in Leeds, it's more like a nur. Um, and so again, you just got that uh, one single tongue position, lip position, and you push through, and that's your no. Um, so I, I don't know. It's so it's possible in the British context it has to do with like contact, very early contact with other languages, so particularly Old Norse. Um, but that is a guess, and you would definitely have to check with a historical linguist <laughs> for that one. I mean, that's uh, fascinating, and it's so interesting because I feel like from my non-linguistics, non-pronunciation perspective, like. I'm from New Zealand and I grow up there and I feel like diphthongs is something I really associate with like New Zealand English, like floor, as opposed to like floor, however, like British no, I... floor. Like I feel like that pattern. So it's really interesting to hear that distinction in as fundamental a word as no in this context. Sometimes things in the world of technology are complicated and need careful explaining. Sometimes they just need a little hard truth. I don't think anyone is going to buy a banana with crypto at any point in the foreseeable future. I'm Lizzie O'Leary, the host of Slate's What Next TBD, your clear-eyed guide to technology, power, and the future. Friday and Sunday, wherever you get your podcasts.
yeah yeah absolutely and um yeah there there's there's all sorts of other um examples of that um so for example um yeah people in um parts of the north of england will like really like drastically reduce certain words so like stereotypical of the Yorkshire English is um um the word the so if you want to say oh something's on telly <laughs> as, as opposed to on the telly um and yeah that I mean that also is a, is a really fundamental function word in English right um but uh it means that anytime somebody from Yorkshire is using um speech to text recognition um or you know Alexa or any digital sort of assistant they're highly likely to have to modify in quite fundamental ways the way they're speaking in order to be understood because digital assistance was something else I was thinking of and I was thinking about good technology you know a technology which has these applications in um in uh, contexts of disability um and you know creating access and inclusion but again if you're having to modify the way that you speak in these fundamental ways it's inclusion at a price it's inclusion and reminding you of just another way in which you might be excluded in some way. Um, so yeah, these technology these technologies are super super complex. Yeah, I completely agree. You know I think it's one of the things that Eleanor and I see a lot with AI applications is that they have this promise of scale, this idea that they can be widely applied. And you know, there's a lot of efficiencies that come with scale, but there's also huge risks, huge capacities for harms and exclusions. Everything from someone might not be able to use this technology through to actually now everyone is changing their vocal patterns to fit a particular predetermined cultural ideal or type. And that is itself like a really sad loss. Um, and especially when it's something as fundamental as the word no, or as fundamental as accessing your finances. Um, and on a side note, you know, my current bank fail is my, uh, my husband's bank uh, thought that he was being scammed by me, uh, his gold digger partner, to the extent where they asked him if he had ever met his wife or his so-called wife. And I can confirm he, he uh, has met me. He's a slam poet, which is not exactly the kind of career you go for if you're really trying to get a lot of money from someone. But I digress. I mean, obviously, I've been thinking really in depth about language and technology in lots of different ways. I want to bring you to something that you were talking about at the beginning, which was large language models. Uh, most of you listening probably have heard of what a large language model is or have used one before, seen them in the news. So ChatGPT is the most famous example. There's a lot of them. And uh, you also mentioned there's a lot of hype around these models. So can you do some myth busting for us to start us off? Could you tell us as a linguist, like, what would you want us to know about large language models? Yeah, for sure. I guess the, the main one um, is about uh, whether they're producing is actually meaning. Are they, are they creating meaning like humans? I mean, to the extent that I saw on, it might be the, the social media site that can no longer be named X. <laughs> the other day somebody uh uh had had discussed their personal problems with chat gpt and and said oh well I, people have talked to me about having therapy and and surely this is it there's a lot to unpack there <laughs> a really well-known linguist who is incredibly experienced in in ai emily bender um and uh, her colleagues wrote the the very famous paper about stochastic parrots Right. And I don't think actually it can be stressed enough the extent to which LLMs, like large language models, really are parrots in this way that as far as we can tell, and this becomes incredibly obvious as soon as you move out of English, they are not making meanings in the way that humans are making meaning. 
right? Meaning is not restricted to um, to semantic meaning on a lexical level. It's not just about getting a word with the right meaning and then stringing it up with another one that tends to follow it, right? Meaning is created, um, we'd call it compositionally, right? By bringing together various units of language. And in creating a unit of language, you might move actually quite a distance from what an individual part of that that unit would mean. Um, and you, want, you need to look across these bigger units of language as to how they how they combine and then how they're interpreted by humans. And uh, that just does not happen in the way that um, LLMs work, right? They have had input into them, all sorts of information about um, the semantic valency of words. So whether they are positively valent or they're negative, dictionary definitions, and of course, an awful lot of human input. And I think that's something that also gets forgotten a lot, uh, how many humans are actually working behind these things as well and just not being recognized for their labor and goodness only knows how well they're being paid for it. Um, <clears throat> so there has a lot of information, um, but this still doesn't operate over the kind of the size of units where as humans, we just naturally interpret um, language. Hopefully that makes sense. Um, that yeah, meaning really has to sort of project past the level of the word and in terms of the kind of information that LLMs have access to reliably, it doesn't often get an awful lot past that. It's how much has that got to do with context? In what sense? The sense that understanding something, you know, when we create a sentence, when we're trying to communicate with someone, it's very context dependent. So it also says a lot about where we are and what our context is. Um, but what happens to context with GPT because it doesn't have its own? I mean, I guess you can argue it has a sort of computational context. Um, but yeah, how does GPT learn? What can it tell us about the way that we learn um, and the importance of context? Yeah, no, this this is a this is a hugely important question, and it's it's one that that Chrissy and Molly and I really deal with in our paper. That um, yeah, children do not learn from strings of language alone. In the certainly not in the way that that large language models, uh, like large um, language learning models, do. Um, so, um, in terms of how context affects child language acquisition, we know very early on things like learning to follow a point with your eyes is key <laughs> in children starting to learn more about how words like I and you can shift meaning. Um, within an utterance um, so I, of course I am always I to me but then somebody else is I to them and never to me um, I may be you um, to the person I'm talking to but then they are you to me and so, so uh, it, it pronouns and how pronouns shift um, uh, are really really fascinating they're an area where children show lots of different stages of development and we can even we think pinpoint sometimes in individual children how things like a family holiday where you talk with more people and more people at once can actually push on their acquisition of you and how to understand what you means just because they have heard it in context. Um, so that's also one reason, right, why children don't require, you know, 3.1 trillion words worth of input in order to acquire language, right, because the context does so much work for them. Um, there's this super interesting dissertation that came out of the University of Maryland by um, a friend of mine called Yuan Yang. And she was interested in how children learn to make assertions, um, ask questions, um, 
and make commands and also recognize how each of those is structured differently. And when she, she created a small computational model and when she fed it with just strings um, of words that, um, so sentences that, that children have heard, real child-directed sentences, the models were not very accurate at all. When she added in pragmatic information about how these strings were being used, the model's accuracy improved dramatically. Um, and this, uh, this just goes to show how crucial a role context plays in child language acquisitions. And lar large language models don't have access to any of that. So you can give them a string like, let's think of a good one, um, didn't, oh, what's the name of uh, Taylor Swift's new uh, squeeze? Um, what's his name? Oh, footballer, Travis. I didn't know how to pronounce his last name. Is it Kelsey? But it begins, like, I know what it looks like. I just don't know how to pronounce it. Right. Okay, we'll go with Kelsey. Why not? Didn't Travis Kelsey play, way, play well at the weekend? Right. And depending on the intonation I give to that utterance and context, so what I already know, what I know about what you know, that, that can actually mean some quite different things. Like, um, I could be being patronizing. I could be being astonished. Um, I could really be asking for um, your opinion, right, based on all of these factors. And again, none of this is information that LLMs have access to because they operate over text. And text is such a specific like, mode of language, of, of language in use. I'm not entirely sure I've answered your question. <laughs> it does answer the question of why there's so many miscommunications over WhatsApp. <laughs> I'm dating at the moment. And I think I like, obviously have no idea how to message, but my messages are always being communicated wrong, interpreted, not in the way I intended. And like, I don't understand like jokes and sarcasm totally lost on me. And I think this means that, you know, the success of my romantic life hinges on this thing that I have no control over. But it also felt like during COVID as well, when it was so much more text-based communication, I feel like I saw so many different relationships break down in different ways or there were just so many more capacities for miscommunication and i do think it was something to do with the specific modality of being text only was making life pretty hard for people yeah i think it also means that conventions are like are sort of developing and arising all the time and they're not arising the same way in different communities especially when it comes to texting right because we've got you know generations who grew who you know grew up entirely without mobile phones um, those who grew up with much less complex mobile phones, and now we, we've got um, you know instant messaging in a, in a very accessible way, um, and the whole suite of emojis and all the wonderful things you can do with those. Um, so um, yeah, th there's a couple of, uh, of people who've talked about punctuation, particularly how punctuation is used uh, in WhatsApp messages. Just recently, like I wouldn't necessarily be averse to sending a WhatsApp message with a full stop at the end if I finish. But apparently if my students did that, my, my 18 year old first years, um, then they would be signaling, no, I am annoyed at you. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, so the, all these sorts of conventions that are just arising within groups, it's, it's almost like lexical variations. So, you know, sort of words that different generations use, but it's, but it's on a more sort of, it's on a more subtle level than that. It's on the kind of syntactic structural sort of level that these things are being interpreted um yeah so it makes it really hard for those of us who've grown up somewhere in the middle <laughs> i had a californian boyfriend at union he didn't use punctuation at all in his messages and so i kind of started doing that because i was lame and um <laughs> now <laughs> i'll send messages to people and they'll be like no punctuation you know like are you going out later but like i don't want i'm not too interested there's not a there's not a question mark <laughs> you know um yeah. it's terrible 
it's yeah it's a disease anyway i'm sorry it reminds me of like um, that line in that lord song where she's like i overthink your punctuation use and i feel like that's such a like integral part now of how, like relationships work um but yeah i mean i actually wanted to ask you a little bit as well about large language models because um you mentioned stochastic parrots which is a fantastic paper and I will be linking that in the full transcript of this episode, which is on our website, www.thegoodrobot.co.uk. We'll also have some readings some books, ones produced by Becky, but also her recommendations. So we'll get you to send those through after. Um, but uh, in Stochastic Parrots, one of the main issues uh, that the authors flag is not only um, the way that these um, models they argue don't really produce meaning but also that there's a lot of harmful and discriminatory effects that come from these models and they might harm certain communities than others and so I wanted to ask you around um, large language models I guess sort of who's included in the possibilities that they offer and who is excluded that's that's a fab question I think I've already talked a little bit about how um, large language models are necessarily based off one mode of language they're just based off text right um, and thousands of languages that um, are used in the world do not have systems. Um, so to some extent, those people are automatically excluded. Um, and sign language um, users as well. Sign languages typically don't have written forms. Um, and they are obviously, their, their structure is completely different because when you're using the, um, the, the visual manual modality that sign languages use, um, you can actually express multiple units of language at the same time, right? Because your hands might be doing one thing, your face might be doing, or and different parts of your face might be doing another one or two things um, to create a whole complex of meaning in one space. It's like a quantum language, right? Rel certainly relative to the spoken modality where like, necessarily physically you can only, can you only produce one sound at a time? Largely, that's what happens. I think you can actually co-articulate sounds, especially in Geordie. <laughs> um, but you know, your 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 meaningful units of language tend to actually ultimately then emerge in a linear fashion, as opposed to at the same time. Um, so the uh, users of languages that have no writing system, and then particularly sign language users, are excluded. I mean, you might want to ask whether or not this is actually a problem for them in some ways, because I was actually in preparation for this chat um, uh, reading over a little bit of your interview with um, Sula and Blodgett she pointed out um, a really important um, point that is inclusion doesn't necessarily mean actually getting everybody um, in sort of an accessible space online because you know those you know, languages can be used for surveillance for example um, so it's not necessarily a positive thing to be included because these technologies, I guess, in themselves are not necessarily always being used in positive ways. Um, and I think that's true for signed language users to a really great extent because there's lots of technological sort of fiddling in sign languages like, oh, I know, let's create a sign language glove that can help interpret sign languages. And sign language users those sort of uniformly seem to be going, no, these things are really, really not helpful. What we need is, frankly, much, much more basic, sometimes not even technological um, interventions, just like greater access to interpreters um, uh, in the spaces in, in which they're moving. Um, you know, inclusion in legal bills, for example. So uh, British Sign Language now, well, is, is still just on its way to becoming a legally recognised language of the UK, right? Um, and that really 
uh, in no small part is due to um, Strictly Come Dancing from uh, when Sailing Ellis was involved in it. Um, yeah, it's, uh, Scot- uh, BSL has been recognised uh, in a greater capacity in Scotland for longer, but not in England and Wales. Right, so these these users of these languages are excluded, but at the same time, actually, when thinking about exclusion, we want to think whether or not they would want to be included and whether or not they would be included on the terms on their terms and in the terms that they need. It's that constant debate about whether we should be leaning in or out, whether we should be resisting these technologies or or whether we want some kind of reform. And I think it's always a really interesting um, point of contention because, you know, we've been working with organizations that are trying to help more languages be represented in AI. Um, but there are all these sorts of consequences to being part of the system. So it's kind of interesting to think with that tension and the temporalities that they register, whether it's like a long-term improvement or just a short-term um, intervention. I'm really interested in bilingualism um, because I've got a lot of bilingual friends and uh, a few of them just can't finish a sentence in one language. They always kind of go for the easiest or the, the word that comes to them first. And there's been some interesting work around um, large language models and bilingualism, trying to improve the way that they process bilingual speech. But are there any other issues around bilingualism and um, how can LLMs improve their understanding of the way that multilingual and bilingual people communicate? Yeah, I'm so glad you're asking me about this. I'm just, I I love (laughs) thinking about the multilingual context. uh, partly because one of the things that I like to look at in my research as well is code switching. So the mixing of multiple languages, exactly like you just mentioned, how, you know, yeah, somebody who has multiple languages um, will rarely, given the right situation, uh, confine themselves to just one because there's certain things that you feel you can express better in a different language that you can express with fewer words in certain languages or or simply it's just more fun and it represents who you are better. Um so, uh, yeah, it, it would seem like LLMs on the whole, not so good <laughs> with multilingual sort of data sets, which, again, is kind of not surprising. Um, there's so few languages represented. And as soon as you introduce multilingual texts, um, it's going to mess up totally your probability calculations in terms of words follow on from each other. Um, so, uh, yeah, a couple of, of recent papers have suggested that in terms of LLMs being able to provide translations of code switching, they just do a really, really poor job of it. Um, and in terms of producing um, code switched texts, um, a really interesting paper by um, Zung Chin Yong and her colleagues um, noted that actually it really depended on the combination of the languages as well, which probably has an awful lot to do with how well they're represented in text and especially in internet text. So, for example, when they asked um, ChatGPT, to produce a short passage in Singlish, um, which is a, a variety of English um, spoken in Singapore that has um, a lot of influence from Mandarin Chinese and Malay in particular. It, it did an okay job of producing some Singlish, but when it asked um, ChatGPT to produce um, a text that was Tamil and English um, code switching, it was full of gram- grammatic, uh, grammatical errors. It was semantically not meaningful because, again, right, semantics is not just about the individual words, but how they actually combine. Um, it even started mixing scripts, which suggested it didn't really fully understand what sort of text it was dealing with. Um, and then in uh, some other examples, it started introducing the wrong languages. 
like it you know language tagging um is not a straightforward process especially in highly multilingual situations so an example that um young and her colleagues gave was when they asked um chat gpt to give a chinese english mixed um text as a malaysian speaker would speak and as soon as chat gpt saw malaysian it went oh well let's throw a whole load of words from malay in there then it got lost along the way and was naming half the tagging half the malay words as chinese and again, we're getting very close to um, the areas of um, uh, stereotypes um, and uh, and other sort of potentially offensive um, uses of language because it's it's wading into a political and social context that it has has no way of dealing with. Um, so I, th I thought that was that was really interesting. And and as you say, Eleanor, like these are ways in which people speak all the time. That said, it's not a way in people necessarily write all that much and so large language models are just not being fed with this kind of language at all mm, that's so fascinating and i want to ask you a little bit more about that just because for like undesirable unnecessary context about myself i grew up around a lot of different kinds of pidgin englishes so forms of english that are spoken in different parts of the world that like bear a lot of their words and some of their structural similarities from English is a root language, but they sound and they operate very differently in a lot of ways. So my dad is fluent in Islamo, which is a pidgin English spoken in Vanuatu. Spent a couple of years growing up in Sierra Leone, which speaks a pidgin English called Creole. And it also say that my own family, who are from Fiji, they when they spoke English out here, they spoke it with a different kind of intonation, different grammatical structures that I wouldn't say that they counted it as like pidgin English itself. Um, but, you know, I think there was definitely a difference in how they spoke English compared to say how I would speak English like at school and I know there's like so many other kinds of pidgin English in the ones that I've named and so I guess I want to ask you like two very difficult questions just to hear your thoughts on that I guess the first was thinking about like you know what was it mean for large language models to actually be able to like meaningfully grapple with not only writing say in English but also understanding like the complexities that go beyond um not necessarily even just say like the specific context of where a phrase is being used, but also the context of how the language itself has traveled. But then also, I guess, the big zoom out question that I really wanted to ask you, which was, I guess, you know, when you're thinking about these issues with language and technology, like how do they help you think about the broader relationship between history and politics and languages themselves? And they are often very deeply complex in colonial histories. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so... I, yeah, I mentioned, and I mean, Eleanor mentioned in her um, sort of intro to the question as well, that identity is so, so key in code mixing. Um, and it, it leads to meaning being created on these really sort of micro levels within specific communities, right? Because even if you take some two of the languages that are in constant contact today on a, on a very wide scale, like Spanish and English, um, you still will find very, very different patterns of code missing, especially, I guess, in, in a lexical sense between sort of Mexican, Spanish and US English speakers, and then on the one hand, and then British English speakers and say Castilian Spanish on the other. So there's a real point to be made here about how language and language names themselves, language designations are, are really, really slippery things. We don't really have a definition for what a language is as opposed to a dialect, as opposed to a, an idiolect even. <laughs> it's very fluid the uh, the definition the the distinction between um, a language and a dialect without being embodied in some way and in use in a in a community there's there's always going to be exclusion in the way that LLMs 
use language in general, but certainly in, in, in multilingual ways. It, it's definitely the case that thinking about the intersection of language and technology has really made me stop and think a lot harder about politics, social issues and history and how they impact on language. Because I guess we're in a situation here where demonstrably, given some of the controversies in, in the tech industry, there is a ruling dominant group that is determining um, exactly what goes into these things and is gatekeeping them. It's an analogy, I guess, for what has been happening for years and years and years um, in, in all of these different spheres. Uh, and the difference is, I guess, that we can see it happening and that it's very, very hard to stop. It's very, very hard to navigate access into those spaces and, and to, to cause change, especially because to cause change in a meaningful way, what you're looking at is slowing down, spending more money, <laughs> um, uh, asking, involving more people and getting views that are not necessarily going to align with your own and, and with your aims. Um, and there's clearly a real unwillingness to do that. To come back to the point about inclusion and how inclusion doesn't just mean putting somebody in a space that's so clear in, in the case of LLMs. Um, because you can feed one of these models with all of the language data that you may have. And of course, so many languages, like I said, don't have the kind of data you can put in. But then what they put out is still not necessarily going to do that community any good. I think if I'd known this, I would have done um, English language A-level and not just English literature because I didn't realise there's a politics to language until I studied French at uni. and. I well, I arrived in Paris and I was staying in the 13th um, and a lot of the people in my in my building were French Moroccan and they used a different language called Verlant, which is like an inverse language, I guess. And, you know, I was like, this is so much more fun than just pure, you know, like pure Académie Française French. And Académie Française, right, is this um, literal building on the banks of the Seine and it's very beautiful and very grand and they decide which the words that will be official French and which aren't and kind of wonderfully I think it's getting less and less important every year hopefully because French is remarkably diverse and is so beautiful in its diversity and I always loved uh, poets like and thinkers like Edouard Glissant who play so much with the language to exposed the shame and the sadness of colonization and the traveling of French across the waters. And then when I was doing my PhD, I discovered this document from 2007, which is super recent. And it showed how the French government was still trying to push the French language on Vietnamese elites, French language and culture. And I suddenly thought, oh God, why didn't I do um, English language A-level, you know, like it would have been so interesting. And I'm such a pedant anyway that I think it really would have, have suited me. Um, I had a debate with our centre director, Stephen, over first versus firstly. And like, I, I love him lots. He's a great, he's a great boss, but I still think he's wrong. <laughs> <laughs> um, so tell us, go on, advertise English language and linguistics. I hope if we haven't convinced listeners already with this podcast, why should they go into it? Just to give like a very brief definition, um, we'd call it basically the scientific study of language um, in all its parts and understanding why it is 
to the best of our knowledge, it still is um, a uniquely human behavior. Um, and because of that, we, you, you're able to study human nature in the most direct way possible, right? Everything else is mediated through language, um, which means if you don't understand language deeply um, and where it comes from, how the mind takes these units and puts them together to produce meaning, then to some extent, I feel I'm going to go out and say it. You'll never really understand people um, and what they're doing, because, again, so much of what they do is mediated through what they're saying um, and being able to hear that in the finest detail, to be able to pick up on the intonation, to be able to pick up on the subtext um, of the some of the, the choices, the subtle choices of grammar. Um, that, that that's crucial to be to being able to really understand them and it's I mean the part of it is about being pedantry in terms of getting down to that level um, but getting down to that level itself is really really important because that that's where the that's where all those differences lie yeah getting down into the really small details in language um, just helps you understand how they all come together to actually you know express some really really big important different ideas about who we are as people um, and, you know, to, to be fair, like, I think French and, and the other languages that you've studied, Eleanor, as well, like those things complement linguistics so much. So linguistics isn't, it's also good if, you, if you're really, really bad at making a choice, right? Because you study linguistics, you can do everything else you, you might possibly want to do within that lens. So you can study, um, it's not just about studying English language, you know, English is just one language that could be an object to study. You could study French, you could study um, German, you can study um, uh, Bishlama, um, any any of these languages through the lens of linguistics. But you can also look at the biology of language. You can, in terms of the vocal tract or um, uh, you know, sort of the manual sides of sign language. You can study psychology, sociology, computer science, um, education, literally every other field of studying through the lens of linguistics. So. You know, you can't make up your mind about what you want to do. Come and study linguistics, and we'll help you. Uh, we'll help you get there. I mean, I feel like this whole episode is just the most wonderful advertisement for linguistics, the field of study. And I say this as someone who's like the complete opposite of a grammar nerd, as Eleanor. <laughs> she very kindly proofreads all our work. But before we go, so you've given like the really good deep answers why you should do linguistics. What's everyone's favorite word or word fact to give a very surface level reason why you should do linguistics? So, Becky, you're up first. Um, so something that uh, children do when they are uh, learning their first language is they've got to try and work out, right, how what we call predicates. So words essentially that relate um, things in the world, exactly how they work and what the structure of them is. Um, and so it's really, really common for kids learning their first language to, you know, make a guess, get it wrong and produce these really lovely new utterances. So just this morning, my two and a half year old um, said, my toy happies me <laughs> because he clearly is still working out what's a verb, what's an adjective. They're both types of predicates. What's the structure in which they can occur? So he's gone and done something called transitivization where he's decided that this thing is capable of happying him, of making him happy. It's something that verbs can do in English, and it just made me really smile. So I share that with you. It happied you. It ha it, exactly. It happied me. <laughs> oh, that's so lovely. I hope he says that forever. <laughs> um, okay. 
I didn't have time to think about this before, but a couple of things. One, so I had a French boyfriend who wrote me the best ever French oral at uni for my like final exam. And it was on words that the French won't use because they think they came from English, but actually they come from the old French. And uh, I think the only one I remember is um, competition. So they'll say, the French will try not to say compétition, they try to say concours instead. But compétition actually does come from the old French, was Latin. But I think the earliest usage was in French to mean rivalry. Um, and I love that. This is why like being snooty about language is just so, so. That's super interesting. My very unfun one, but really links very well to like what we're talking about, like bilingualism and multilingualism in terms of like how you combine languages is in Fijian, goodbye is mode. It's M-O-C-E, I think, because C is the. And then stupid is dode. And obviously I don't speak any real languages like fully fluently apart from English, but I know stupid in many different ways in Fijian because that is my family summed up. So our family goodbye is always mode, mode, don't be dode. I don't think ChatGPT would be able to produce that level of, you know, linguistic flair. So there we go. Um, most importantly, thank you so much, Becky, for coming on. This has been incredibly informative. You have really sold big linguistics to the world. But more importantly, I hope given lots of people things to think about when it comes to language and technology and sort of all the promises and risks and provocations that come with that. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a ton of fun. Hot takes with the-